Good afternoon. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. My name is Joe Simperman. I'm the president of Global Cleveland and a proud City Club member. Today is September 16th, and you are with a virtual City Club forum. We are in the midst of many, many celebrations right now. First of all, happy welcoming week. The week between September 11th and September 18th across the United States is the week when cities like Cleveland and communities like Northeast Ohio lift up, illuminate, and thank the newcomers, immigrants, and refugees who make our lives so much better. Happy welcoming week. Tomorrow, September 17th in 2020, the United States will celebrate its 233rd anniversary of signing the U.S. Constitution. Often referred to as Constitution Day or Citizenship Day, this annual celebration commemorates the signing of the U.S. Constitution and honors those who have become U.S. citizens by coming of age or naturalization. This year's commemoration, however, is far more serious. The unprecedented global pandemic that knows no borders or ethnicity has brought into sharp focus the intersection of U.S. immigration, public health policy, humanity, and compassion. The unique challenges that immigrants and refugees face in America is like any other. The pandemic, coupled with the coming election, stand to have a singular impact on our immigrant, refugee, and newcomer communities. And while this disease is being politicized by some and being xenophobically named after one nation, we know it affects each and every one of us on every continent and in every country. Today, we have assembled a panel of leaders to discuss the issues facing Ohio's immigrants and refugees and migrants in 2020 and what lies ahead. And a special thanks to Patrick Kearns who will be on our panel from Refugee Response who created this event as part of the annual gathering that Refugee Response does at their beautiful farm behind the Riverview CMHA estate on West 25th and Bridge where Refugee Response farms the land and makes beautiful things come from the soil. Today, we're gonna to talk about how COVID-19 is creating distinct challenges for Northeast Ohio's newcomers, including those who are essential workers and those who are, have been put out of work by the pandemic. We're also gonna be talking about their families, their children, and how this all affects online learning through the refugee, immigrant, and migrant perspective. These issues run headlong into political flashpoints like restrictions on government assistance, health care for the undocumented, the federal government's unprecedented limits on refugees and those seeking asylum, all while we are in the final days of a decade counting census effort where we are trying to make sure that we are all counted, even under restriction of many, many legal attempts to try to say who can and can't be counted. Joining me today for this very special panel are some very special people. Please allow me to introduce Sara Ellicott. She is the Executive Director of Minds Matter Cleveland, a nonprofit working to prepare high school students from low-income families to get to and through college by providing a resource-rich three-year program, which includes mentoring, test prep, writing enrichment, and attendance at summer college programs across the nation. For so many of our students, those born in the United States and those born abroad, Sara and her team are the difference in a child's life that gives them the chance to pursue their dreams. 
She immigrated to the United States as a refugee when she was a child. She brings personal and professional expertise to this panel. Next, allow me to introduce Jennifer Johnson. Jennifer has been the state refugee coordinator with the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services since 2013. In this role, she and her unbelievable staff work with agencies across the state of Ohio to ensure that newly arrived refugees gain employment and have access to available resources to help their families become self-sufficient as they make Ohio their home. Next, we are joined by Monica Ramirez, the founder and president of Justice for Migrant Women. Monica is an extraordinary activist and organizer who calls the Fremont Sandusky, Ohio area of Northeast Ohio her home. She comes from a farm worker family. In 2003, she created the first legal project in the United States dedicated to addressing gender discrimination against farm worker women. And she continues to fight for the rights of people who make sure that we all have food on our table while they work for all of us in the field. And finally, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce the person who put this whole panel together, Mr. Patrick Kearns, the executive director and leader now of the amazing Refugee Response. Refugee Response is an organization that has existed in Northeast Ohio to ensure that refugees have the resources they need when they land in Cleveland or anywhere in our region. He is not only an accomplished leader of a nonprofit who's in the middle right now of building a new building and making great things happen, he also served in the Thailand, Myanmar area as someone who worked with the refugee community for so long, for 14 years. And in 2016, he was the recipient of the Unsung Hero of Compassion Award presented to him by none other than His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. This is a phenomenal panel. Welcome, Monica, Patrick, Sarah, and Jennifer. And thank you so much for being a part of this today here at the City Club. Today, we're gonna to start with a few broad questions and we're gonna get into this. I'd like to ask if I could, specifically for Patrick, what are some of the challenges, Pat, that you've seen during this COVID epidemic that have been specific to the refugee community that you serve? Have you seen a bigger impact on refugees? And how do you think we're doing here in Northeast Ohio with regard to making sure that this vulnerable population is, is being cared for. Patrick? Sure, thanks, Joe. Um, I just wanna th thank the City Club and my fellow panelists. It's, uh, it's truly an honor to, uh, to be here with you all today. Um, the first thing I think it's important to consider is overwhelmingly the newcomer population we work with is already dealing with a lot of the manifold issues of poverty, as well as cultural and language barriers to accessing services and opportunities. So what we saw from, you know, really April to June kind of put a fine point on exposing the fragility of social services as well as the vulnerability of some of our newcomer populations. I kind of think of it in two buckets. The first bucket was information. The second bucket was access. Mm -hmm. uh, on the information side, you know, right starting end of March uh, and into April, we saw rampant misinformation and fake news coming out. Uh, you know, to the degree where there were stories making the rounds in a variety of languages, talking about um, helicopters coming in and dropping disinfectant citywide. Uh, it, you know, it's also important to understand that a lot of these refugees we serve are coming from areas of the world where news outlets, state media has been used against them. 
So they approach things with a healthy amount of skepticism already. And that uncertainty in those first few months really became a, a serious challenge. So, you know, agencies in Cleveland had to dig in, create information, turn it around pretty quickly. That was going to be reliable. Um, secondly, you know, on information, official sources, you know, official um, official sources like for employment benefits, for support, they were not providing support in different languages. So everything, when it moved online, there was very limited amounts of language support provided. So families who often don't speak English were struggling with that basic access. Uh, and I think that access connects to what we saw next coming, you know, really starting in June with spikes in unemployment, uh, everything moving online. The systems that were set up were virtually impossible for our our community members to navigate themselves. So that required a great amount of assistance coming in. Uh, so language and technology posed a massive challenge in those first few months. And then that kind of bled directly into uh, issues around unemployment. We saw a huge unemployment spike that then resulted in food insecurity issues. Uh, and you know, you gotta think while we have this unemployment spike, the majority of the clients that we're working with are you know, the essential service providers. So you had schools closed, daycare closed. Uh, the essential service providers are still in work, but without that access to daycare or school. And so that led into other issues, you know, around childcare, around food security, and then access to education. So that was in the first couple months. Uh, and I think collectively, we've all been pushing forward on that to, to try to address some of those issues. Thanks so much, Patrick. Jennifer, as someone who you know worked with Patrick along with the other voluntary agencies in Northeast Ohio that resettle refugees every year, you know you've got a statewide perspective. And, and Pat talked about information. He talked about access, and he talked about fragility. We know our governor has been on the front lines of talking about COVID almost with the daily press conferences. But we also know that yesterday was one of the highest mortality rates that the state of Ohio has seen since um, we started tracking in March. Can you talk a little bit, Jennifer, as an expert in the statewide refugee effort, how you see this COVID response has been and things that you wanna make sure that people are aware of that they may not think of when they think about the communities that Patrick serves? Um, yes, thank you, Joe. And thank you, Patrick and the City Club for having me today. Um, in response to that, as far as the communities and um, the impact that COVID has had on them, I think as a statewide effort, and I will um, uh, make an example out of Patrick, they made a lot of exit videos very quickly at the beginning that I have shared nationwide, um, very easy to understand, and they were quickly put out at the beginning. I think a lot of people were kind of um, desperate for resources. They were short to come by at the beginning since everything was very new and new information was being shared every day and being updated and they had to be changed into languages. Um, all of these things were done throughout the state. I think everybody was kind of banding together. Um, like I said, I shared Patrick's resources from refugee response, not only across the nation, but immediately here in Ohio, as well as other people created their own resources. Um, locally, um, yes, flyers and videos are great, but things were moving so quickly a lot of agencies in Ohio would just make their own short, quick video and blast it out to clients. Um, it was a lot of things that happened very quickly and on the go that I don't think people realize. I mean, we realize the impact that COVID has had on our lives, um, changing the way we work and communicate and live our lives. 
all of the resettlement agencies and agencies that work with refugees had to also, they were now working um, from home, working remotely and having to learn to do their job differently, um, where they work one-on-one -on -one with individuals, I'd say nearly all of the time, they had to learn how to communicate. So I was amazed at um, how quickly, I know there was a, there still is a lot of difficulty um, technology-wise, um, but the refugee population is pretty savvy for the most part as far as communicating on social media and connecting. Um, like I said, it's not perfect, but I know that the efforts made throughout the state is there and they're always working to make it better and more improved. Um, so I think that's something maybe people didn't know, but um, yeah, people uh, on the fly as far as um, creating resources and getting resources wherever they can and get the information out there. And the interesting thing I think about COVID is that it, with the refugee population, it's not a lot of different from ourselves. Everything you hear that the governor tells Ohioans on a daily basis, please no large family gatherings, please um, you know, limit social contact. These are things that are happening in the refugee community as well. So it's something we're all learning together and having to pass this down to the refugee population as far as um, we don't need to have three families meeting at your home on Sunday afternoon like you normally do. Um, just communicating a lot of these things because it was one of those rare things where we were all experiencing the thing, everything at the same time. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Um, you you, spent, meant, you mentioned a little bit the conversation about education and about you know what we're all going through. Um, I often think about um, the CEO of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District, Mr. Eric Gordon, who has been on different panels here at the esteemed City Club, talking about how he's pretty sure that nobody, and I can say that by looking at this panel right now, none of us are in a McDonald's parking lot looking for a hotspot, right? And yet so many of our kids and our families are struggling with trying to figure out how to make that technological um, connection which is why I can say as a private citizen and as a dad of two kids in the Cleveland Public School District, why I think it's so important this fall to support the school levy. And while this isn't a political rally, it just shows how absolutely essential it is for us to fill in the gaps in the digital divide and why it's so important for us to support our local public schools. Sarah, you deal with this every day on such a level of trying to help students, not only with college, but with life and with school. Can you talk a little bit how you've seen it in the English as a Learning Language Academy or the English as a Learning Language uh, community with kids that are going through a lot right now and don't even have maybe the benefit of having English as a first language, but you're dealing with it on so many different perspectives and from your own personal perspective as someone who came to the United States as a refugee. Sarah? Sure. Thanks, Joe. And, you know, as you highlighted, it is super important to support our local institutions, especially education. We rely on schools and educational nonprofits to make up for so much and to uh, fill the gap in terms of resources and academic success and all the other things that students rely on to be successful. And here in Cleveland, we certainly have a digital divide. Um, our families in our public schools are um, take up they are a significantly lower income population. And um, often, you know, what we're seeing both in our uh, lower income communities and our immigrant communities, often, um, often those are low income communities as well, um, is that our 
families lack access to resources such as laptops, computers, internet. Um, sometimes there are you know more than one one child in the family, but not. In the, the, num the number of laptops in the family may not match the number of children attending school remotely. So that's been an issue. Um, having access to IT support um, when parents may be essential workers, they are maybe not available to help or they don't have the background to help. Um, CMSD has been great in partnering with uh, Patrick at the Refugee Response and I think coming up with a mobile IT support unit to help families with that. Um, I also wanna say that you know, at Minds Matter and I know at the district level and anyone who's working in education, um, what we see often is that we are constantly dealing with the widely impactful effects of poverty and systemic racism. And those things matter to children's success all the time. So students who do not have reliable health insurance at home, um, parents who are working uh, a great deal of hours and are not around to, to support them in their educational um, endeavors, especially remotely. These things apply all the time. But you said you know, that the, um, the pandemic knows no ethnicity. Unfortunately, our society is deeply, deeply aware of ethnicity and at the systemic level. And what we are seeing even is that children of color are dying from COVID-19 at far higher rates. Actually, a report came out from NPR today that 78% of children who have died of COVID are children of color. A large number of those are Hispanic and Latino children. And um, those are children that are represented in our communities here in Cleveland. Imagine what that means for them um, if, if they and their families are just uh, morbidity-wise impacted more by this pandemic, the stress and the anxiety that surrounds their daily lives far more than perhaps you and I would experience and how that impacts their schooling as well. Thank you so much, Sarah. You speak so directly to the anxiety and the fear that people have, um, and also the unknown. I mean, you know, in so many ways, Monica, you are working with a community that society continues to see as invisible, except when they have salad or vegetables or food on their table. And but for the community that in which you are a leader, right? in all months during Hispanic Heritage Month, right? This great month when we recognize our sisters and brothers, you know, with Latino and Hispanic heritage. And you're, you're coming across this in a way where you don't even have the advantage of, of necessarily being part of a larger conversation where people say, well, we're gonna keep people counted. In fact, it was, the, it was our government's effort to keep the community that you represent off the census. So could you talk a little bit about that, Monica, as someone That's who right. grew up in a farm worker family, for whom we should all show gratitude for the fact that we can eat fresh food every day. Monica Ramirez. Thank you, Joe. And um, thank you, Patrick and the City Club for, for putting this event together. And I really wanna start with something that you said, Joe, which is about the fact that the farm worker community is made invisible. And we're not gonna do that today. We're gonna bring the farm worker community into this space and by first sharing a, a, an image of the farm worker community with all of you as I share some background that I think is important. Uh, you know, the farm worker community in this state is largely uh, Latino, like most farm workers across the nation. Uh, farm workers 
about 83% of farm workers um, are Latinx. And uh, the majority of farm workers in our state and across the country live in extreme poverty. Patrick talked about this some um, in his remarks and, um, and in terms of the poverty that people are experiencing throughout our nation. And with the farm worker community, I think it's important for people to understand that farm workers earn an average of $22,000 a year. And if you're a farm worker woman, that means that you earn only $11,000 a year on average. And during this pandemic, we have seen the wide inequities that exist in our nation um, from the fact that as farm workers continued to do the work in the early days of the pandemic, they talked to me about the fact that they had no food for their own families. You know, we've seen situations in which farm workers across the country and in this state have become ill with COVID and some are dying. Far farm workers are essential workers, have always been essential workers alongside so many other workers, but they've been denied essential rights and benefits by our government for decades and even now. During this crisis with COVID, we saw that as bills were being passed, the farm worker community, immigrant community members, particularly undocumented community members, were left behind and didn't have access to uh, the the you know, the rebates that some families receive, um, farm workers can't count on paid leave. We're seeing here in the state, people talk about the fact that when they were believed to have been exposed to someone with COVID, they were told that they couldn't go to work and had to quarantine, but they weren't being paid for that time. So there have been many ways in which the community has been impacted. Sarah talked about the morbidity rate that's impacted the Latinx community including the farm worker community. And what we hear from farm workers across the country, particularly farm workers, uh, farm worker women, they say that every day they're experiencing this extreme stress. They're worried that they're gonna take COVID home to their families as they continue to work. They're worried that they're going to get sick and not be able to provide for their family knowing that they have so little. And they're also worried about going to the authorities, as Patrick mentioned. You know, in Northeast Ohio, not that long ago, there was a major immigration raid. And so immigrants in our state who are farm workers are afraid to seek help because they're worried that somehow they're going to get in trouble if they try to get help. And we've sadly heard from some workers that they would rather be sick and not know that they have COVID than go seek help to be treated for COVID because they are afraid of the outcomes, whether that be losing their job or being, you know, put, you know, having to quarantine for a couple of weeks or having some other kind of adverse consequence. And so I just think that the weight of this COVID crisis has fallen on the shoulders of, of farm workers and other migrant workers in ways that it's hard for any of us to imagine. And it's very difficult to us to think about what it's going to take to come out of this crisis. Monica, thank you so much for that uh, important perspective um, that we all need to hear. Uh, I'd like to remind everyone, um, this is a panel right now with Jennifer Johnson, Monica Ramirez, Patrick Kearns, and Sarah Ellicott, and your questions are most welcome. If you wanna text them to 330-541-5794. Again, questions for the City Club panel as we continue our conversation, 330-541. 5794. You can also tweet at the City Club if you have a question, and we'll make sure we try to get to the uh, questions as we continue. So we've been talking a lot about where we were with COVID from March to today. Uh, we all know that in a few short weeks, um, a major referendum is happening across our country 
And while all of us on this panel are part of nonprofits or government and we're not political, I think we all agree it's so important to vote, right? Voting is part of being a United States uh, resident. If you are allowed to vote, you should vote. You know, we're not saying right now um, in terms of what it is that you should vote for. I think it's pretty clear that this uh, is a panel on human rights. But I do want to ask you, and I'll start with you, Patrick, what happens in November with the election? Um, and if you could talk a little bit from 2016 until today, how has your world changed? And then I'm going to ask the other panelists the same question as well, as we look at what does it mean in November depending on the outcome of our of our national uh, government decisions. Patrick? Sure, sure thing, thanks Joe. And I know that uh, Jennifer can probably fill in some of the specifics <laughs> on what happened after 2016, but in general, you know, what we saw was a swift reversal of a decades long program that had been welcoming refugee newcomers. Um, so in, during the 2016, we had an intake uh, nationally, little slightly over 100,000 folks came in. And then we saw that drop precipitously uh, to this point where in 2020, our uh, intake as of right now this year is slightly under 8,000 people. That's nationally, uh, which is you know the worst Browns game in the history of the Browns. And there's been a couple bad ones. But if you can think about that, I mean, that's such that's a that's a fraction of a fraction of the amount that we were at several years ago. So if we if we're casting out looking post November, uh, I can imagine four different scenarios we could potentially be seeing. First would be uh, an incoming Biden administration where their policy they've put out is getting up to 125,000 new arrivals through the refugee resettlement program with an annual cap of 95,000, an annual floor. So that would be a Senate and a congressional approved bill uh, that makes that a permanent change in our uh, refugee administration policies. Now, if we see a, uh, a continuation of the Trump administration, you know, we could see uh, a continuity of the policy we see now, which is around 18,000, which is the ceiling of, uh, you know, refugees coming in uh, annually, where, you know, that's quite a bit smaller. My feeling is we would see a preference on uh, military, uh, military referrals as well as religious minorities in that context. Uh, and then we could see a third scenario, which is the resettlement program effectively going out to zero. So, uh, you know, the administration reelected feeling empowered, taking this forward and having a, uh, a complete halt of our of our, uh, you know, refugee program. The fourth scenario is, you know, if there's confusion after the election and, you know, if there's not a clear outcome. And I think the only thing we could imagine is a halt uh, of the program. And then until th the dust gets settled, until things get figured out, and then I would imagine we're seeing one of the first three scenarios. Um, you know, I, and I think they each come with different challenges. You know, you know, especially like if there is an intake and we go up to 125,000 folks in a year, you know, that's going to be a challenge for the service providers. You know, we have seen this uh, this industry basically be gutted out. It's it's atrophied compared to what it was in 2015, 2016. So that's going to be a big challenge to play. But, you know, I know um, that we are we are up for the challenge as well. Thanks, Patrick. Jennifer, we know last year uh, Governor DeWine uh, sent a letter to Secretary Pompeo and to the president where he affirmed Ohio as a welcoming state to refugees. Um, we're fortunate to have that kind of leadership uh, with respect to the refugee community. Are there any things that you're preparing for as a leader 
within the state of Ohio, you've always got to be looking at the world as is, right? We all have dreams of the world that could be, but you're in a place where you have to deal with it. And do you have two folders on your desk? One says November 4th, the other says November 4th, and you look at both of them and think, who knows what this is going to be? Um, the folders are in my mind, and I, look at them. I don't want to put anything on paper yet, um, but I agree with Patrick's four scenarios. Um, and then number one, as he said, of course, is for what we want in the refugee resettlement program. However, that is good news. It is going to be challenging, as Patrick explained. Um, everything has kind of declined, which means in Cleveland, we're very fortunate to have three resettlement agencies that still exist. Um, Ohio overall has um, regained the majority of the resettlement agencies. Um, two very small ones um, were closed, but they were in cities that where other agencies existed. That was not the case throughout the country. A lot of resettlement agencies closed. So the good news is the agencies still exist. Um, the rough news is, is staff exist. However, they've been doing other jobs, doing other things, trying to serve refugees in other capacities, some that have been here longer. Um, so I think it's trying to look at rebuilding um, and how you can rebuild the resettlement program to a higher capacity. And not only that, but making sure the community is on board and aware of the additional resources that are gonna be needed for the higher numbers, um, because we've been, I guess, used to the lower numbers. Um, I guess my second folder for the continuation of the smaller numbers is um, kind of doing what we've been trying to do is making sure the refugees that are here um, are served and are still receiving um, employment services and, you know, doing what we can to advocate when we can um, to ensuring that the population remains, continues to arrive. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Sarah, you're looking at this through an education lens, through attempting to serve communities uh, where English may be a learning language. You know, you're someone who understands this very much from the ground. What do you see on November 10th in terms of the realities of the world that we live in? And how is your leadership, your brilliant leadership at Minds Matter Cleveland and as a board member of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District, taking these very two different worlds into account? Yeah, so I mean, first I'll just speak to and emphasize the level of stress and um, mental health impact that some of the, I'll come right out with it, this administration's policies have had on immigrant and refugee families, in particular, in addition to other um, populations. Um, so I think that you know, there could be a sea change in that sentiment in the in the in November after the election, depending on how things go. I also wanted to comment on a little bit on what Patrick was getting to about refugee admissions. And um, you know, I first want to say that immigrants are not a monolith, right? It is a diverse population of people who come here through a variety of different ways. For me personally, I came as a refugee, and that is when you are. Um, you receive status before you arrive and you are approved to come as a refugee. Many of the families that um, I was assume Monica works with and in our uh, CMSD are asylees or asylum applicants. So that means they come here not knowing whether they will be able to be admitted and what will happen to them and often too often end up in uh, the border camps that our government has set up where they are currently treated with 
um, lack of regard for their human rights, to, to put it lightly. So um, those things are real stressors on our families. As to refugees, the year that I came to the United States, 1993, with my parents, I'm sorry, 1992, um, the number of refugee admissions approved by the president and Congress that year was 132,000. That was the highest number of refugees that has ever been admitted to the U.S. in one year. And as Patrick mentioned, this year it's 18,000. So if I had, if my parents had applied for refugee status to the U.S. this year, very high chance I would not be here. And um, so that is a hugely significant and important thing to know. Um, that that number is determined every year, every fiscal year, and um, we are in the middle of the world's possibly, you know, the the worst refugee crisis we've ever had in the world, and a, a severely inequitable world where people have lots of reasons for needing to come to a safer place and. Um, the, what happens in November is going to really impact what happens, you know, in 26 years from now, will there be another, you know, Sarah Ellicott who was admitted uh, that year to the U.S. because we, we let in enough people who needed to come here or not? Sarah, I just, um, I we're just so grateful you're here. We're so grateful your family picked Cleveland. Um, we, I don't want to imagine uh, a Cleveland without Sarah. So, sorry, I, I have that right to, as an as a moderator to say that, Monica, you're you're in such a very specific place where the community you serve has been in the headlines, right? It's the kids in cages. It's the building right. wall. Um, we just recently learned from a, a whistleblower complaint, not just about COVID, and even the individuals who are guards getting sick. But there's a conversation going on NPR and on the wire right now about forced sterilization of, of women that you serve. That's right. And and yet you are here. You are a woman of brilliance and hope and light. And you're looking at um, two two roads in, in that are diverging. How are you preparing for that, Monica, considering that you're fixing the airplane that you fly every day? Yeah, you know, I I appreciate that question so much because the reality is I, I'm an organizer. And as an organizer, what we know when we look at the laws of our country, the immigration laws of our country and, and others, including employment, is that it isn't just one administration that has not done right by our communities over many years. And as an organizer, we have to continue to put the right uh, pieces in place in order for us to bring people together to fight for the rights that we know that we need and deserve. And, and in this particular moment, I think that we have this additional challenge where people are experiencing great trauma. People do feel like we're walking around with a target on our back. We're living um, the, a reality in which essentially large numbers of our community are being put out uh, into the world to work jobs that are needed to keep this country running while knowing that they might not make it home because they might get sick and die. Like this is the reality that we're in. And when I think about the election, I think that there there is a possibility that there could be a, a, a you know a new administration that will try to undo some of the harm that's been done, try to put policies in place that will be um, more expansive and more reflective of the kind of values that people who um, understand the great importance of, of immigrants to our country um, espouse. And 
you know, and we're all hopeful that there will be that possibility of change for a different reality for immigrants and for all people in our country who've been experiencing this marginalization. Uh, but there, but there's also the possibility that if that were not to be the case, we have to continue to organize no matter what. And we have to continue to hold all of our political leaders accountable, our state leaders, our local leaders. There are many people who are in leadership positions who are making decisions that impact the lives of immigrants and other community members every single day. And so I think it's important for us to also send the message that we're not voting for just one person on election day. There are many people who will receive or not receive our votes. And there are many people who we should be talking about with respect to what their track record is, what policies they're supporting, what they hope to do for immigrants and other people in our country and for workers. And we have to really make sure that we're thinking as broadly as possible about who is responsible and what we can do to make sure that they do the work so that these communities, our communities can heal thrive and finally address some of the gaps and rights that exist in this state and across the nation. So Monica, let me ask you then a direct question. To the mayor of Springfield, Ohio, to the council president of Parma, Ohio, to the state representative that's coming from Chillicothe, what would you say this is what you can do? Because so often in the space that Jennifer and Patrick and Sarah and Monica that you occupy, there's this sense that it's it's coming from on high. That's we can't right. Do anything. What can I do? It's just me. What would you say to folks in terms of the work that you're doing to protect migrant workers and their rights? Well, in this very moment, you know, we're having a conversation about COVID and essential workers and farm workers and other migrants have been denied these essential rights and benefits, as I said at the beginning. And that's why we created along with some other groups, a national campaign to win essential rights for workers. And yesterday here in the state of Ohio, in Toledo, um, the, the Toledo City Council was the first to put forward a resolution for essential workers' uh, rights. And that is significant because basically what this resolution says is that essential workers, including farm workers and, and including many other low-paid workers who are immigrants, they deserve to be able to be paid fairly, to have paid leave, and to have all sorts of other things that are necessary in order for them to leave whole lives. And now I would say to all the other political leaders across our state, they need to follow suit. Toledo has set the example, and now we need we need all the leaders. We need the governor to make sure that there is a safety standard for farm workers, because there is not one, despite the fact that there is a, a health and safety standard for 27 industries, and agriculture is the number one industry in our state, but there is no health and safety standard for COVID for the agricultural community. We need all these other city leaders, city council people and, and county leaders to say, we wanna make sure that our essential workers, no matter whether they're working in retail or food processing or in the fields or as healthcare workers, that they have what they need because they are doing what it takes to keep our state running and to keep our country running. So that is my call to action to these, these um, political representatives. It isn't only members of Congress or the president who needs to take decisive action right now for farm workers and other migrant workers. It's every single political leader and it's all of us as consumers and people in the state who care about immigrants who need to also speak up and take action in order to hold our political leaders accountable to make the changes required. Calling Cleveland, calling Dayton, calling Cincinnati and Columbus. Monica, thank you. And thank you for sharing that breaking news on Toledo. 
Uh, really appreciate that. Want to remind everyone if you have questions at 330-541-5794, 330-541-5794, or you can tweet at the City Club. I have a question uh, for you, Patrick, and this is a pretty straightforward question. I've never met a refugee. I don't know Sarah. Monica seems nice. Jennifer's a hard worker. You're a good guy. I live in Solon, Ohio. Why should I care? What does the refugee, newcomer, immigrant, migrant farm worker, essential worker, what does it mean to me? I don't know when my family came over. Maybe the Mayflower. Patrick, what's up? So I think you can make three principal arguments. It's morally right. Uh, I think our nation has always, you know, in the, in the past, embraced that understanding that we have a responsibility to protect people in far-flung areas of the world, especially when a lot of the issues that have resulted in refugee uh, displacement are connected to some of the foreign policies that we've been engaged with. Um, you know, I think of Afghanistan, I think of Iraq. Um, it's culturally right. Uh, when we bring in people from different areas of the world, it, you know, it creates a more robust, diverse economy. It creates better restaurants, more accessibility to food and culture. And then the, the third one is it's economically right. Um, you know, we've engaged, you know, with a, uh, a consortium group in Cleveland two different times over the past six years in doing a, um, a study on what is the financial impact. And we can show that for every $1 that goes into the resettlement program to bring new folks here, there's an $8 return to the local economy. Well, why is that? It's because people, when they get here, they work, they get jobs, they pay taxes, they buy houses, they buy cars, they become a part of our local economy. Um, so I think you can make the argument from several different perspectives. Um, from my standpoint, I can say, you know, in Cleveland, we need new folks coming in. There is always jobs that are available um, that we are getting calls. And I know Global Cleveland gets calls on a weekly basis for openings and for positions. So, you know, I think we should look at what we can do in this city to make this city even more attractive to bring in new folks. Thanks so much for that, Patrick. You know, yesterday, immigrations, you know, in the news constantly. I know Monica and Sarah and Jennifer, Patrick, you saw this, that right now there are 400,000 people potentially could be affected by a decision that was made by our national administration to terminate uh, legal immigration status, temporary protective status. These are for individuals who came here from Haiti uh, under natural disaster or El Salvador with a, a war uh, that was raging, in some cases to Mauritania, where we know that if individuals get deported from Cleveland and go back from Northeast Ohio, they're, they're immediately arrested, if not worse. And so we're dealing with all of this in an environment. And I, I want to ask you, Sarah, I want to ask you, Monica and Jennifer, how do you deal with this when English isn't even a first language, right? Anxiety is so palpable in our communities. And yet each of you is constantly saying, no, we have today, we have tomorrow. Sarah, how does that work when you encounter someone who you're trying to explain what's going on with the pandemic? Or if they ask you the question, why does my government hate me? What do you say, Sarah? What do you say, Jennifer and Monica? Sarah? Sure. So, um, you know, I think that with, with the TPS decision and the information coming out about that yesterday, um, 
what do I say? I mean, the best thing that anyone can do when talking to or supporting or interacting with somebody who is a marginalized group in the United States, and there are so many of us, um, is to listen. So, you know, just hearing what Monica was saying earlier about um, how to support the communities that she works with, looking to the organizers and the advocates who are truly uh, representing uh, the people who are being marginalized and listening to them and doing what they ask. Um, sometimes as uh, more privileged people, we, we know that we are educated, we are informed, we want to help, but um, sometimes we just need to listen and, and do what those communities are asking of us. And so I would say, um, I, what I would say to the person depends, but the first thing that I would do is listen and uh, attempt to understand how to support them. And that's what I always say to anybody asking that question. So. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. Jennifer, you're looking at this on a statewide level. You work for our government. You have to come across people sometimes who just want to give up. But you're here. Our, our team of brilliant minds is here. What do you say to someone who asks you the question, why? Um, I think, as Sarah said, is first listen um, and make sure that you have the facts that you can present to them. Um, a lot of facts aren't always accurate these days. Um, you have to make sure um, they are not receiving any misinformation and be honest and I give them or let them lead them to the resources that may be able to help them or get their voice out there more because I feel like things change very quickly and information is not received always accurately in small pieces at a time. And it can be difficult um, to try and explain things without, without, without a lot of information. The past Thanks, years. Jennifer. Monica, if I could just add a, a piece to this as the questions are coming in. And again, 330-541-5794 or at the City Club if you wanna tweet. Monica, we just recently went through a conversation that the courts affirmed about the public charge. And the public charge basically said that people who were legally here, who did not have citizenship yet, could be penalized if they got food stamps or applied for public housing vouchers or even had health care, even though we know that the time to get health care is early, not later. And mm -hmm. for people who we have deemed legal. Monica, you don't ask questions of status. You don't check people's papers. You don't ask people to take any kind of test. How do you deal in the world where some of the individuals that you're working with may not be eligible for programs that Patrick or Sarah or Jennifer's programs so generously offer, but you're just basically trying to keep our sisters and brothers alive? Monica. I mean, the majority of the people that we serve are undocumented. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, they don't qualify for many of these services. And even when people do qualify for these services, because they're afraid that will have some adverse impact on an immigration petition or what have you, they choose not to seek benefits because they're afraid of some kind of consequence. And so we, what we do is we try to create resources where we can. So, you know, during this pandemic, we created a farm worker pandemic relief fund and um, have raised over $3.3 million and 
um, to help get resources into the community here in Ohio and across the country. Um, we've tried to work with corporate leaders to um, get other resources um, that are needed, whether it be the, the you know, personal protective um, equipment that people have needed or food or other items. You know, all together, our COVID relief efforts have raised through um, dollars and through in-kind donations about $10 million worth uh, of aid at this point um, since the pandemic started. So we constantly look for organizations and services and opportunities where we can help fill the gaps where people might not qualify. But that's only part of what we can do. The other thing that we have to do is is our advocacy. And I think that um, you know the point about making sure that immigrants are heard is so crucial because I can talk about what immigrant tell me that they need, but hearing directly from them about what they needed, their concerns and priorities is so important. And we need to be able to create space so that the immigrant community members and refugees can raise their concerns with political leaders who can help make changes because providing aid is essential in this moment. And we're doing the work every day to try to make that happen. But we also need the policy changes and we need more welcoming programs like the work that Patrick is doing and like the work that some of the cities are doing um, to make sure that people understand that they're wanted here and that we need them here and our country relies on them. And I would say the last thing in addition to listening is we have to help people make a plan. Um, you know, and that is not just sharing resources, but also helping to actually create a plan of what to do if something were to happen. Because I feel as though in the conversations that I've had with immigrants who are scared about being deported or having their children taken away, et cetera, it's the unknown and not knowing what could happen if, if they are acted upon, you know, by by the police or immigration, et cetera. And so I, I find that we have to help provide some amount of comfort and control um, to folks who right now feel like they're in free fall. And the way that we can do that is providing the resources and helping to provide some planning and then reaffirming the fact that they are wanted here. We appreciate them and we need them in this country. And there are plenty of us, like all of us on this webinar today who are fighting for them and who are gonna walk alongside them throughout this journey. Thanks so much, Monica. And I think it's just so important because you touched on it, that even our sisters and brothers without documents or paper still pay taxes. We know that for a fact. We know that the people that we're talking about, whether they're refugees, immigrants, people without paper give back more. And Patrick, you referred to that in terms of the economic development study. And so I'm gonna ask this question to each of you. Why should I have hope? What is it right now in this time that you can tell me or tell someone who's watching when asylum fees are rising, when naturalization fees are about to double, when we know that there is just so much bearing down on our international community. I'll ask you first, Patrick, why do we hope? Because there's a difference between truth and rhetoric. And the example I wanna give started in 2016. And if you remember 2016, the run up to the general election, there were a number of ads that came out demonizing the Syrian refugee population, demonizing them. And what was the impact that we saw was immediately from 2016, Syrian refugees came in 12,587, and that went down immediately to 62 in 2018, 62. Now, what was the reason we were given? The reason we were given is that this was a threat, that there was a security threat. Well, it's 2020. What security threat has there been? 
we can we can prove the lie to some of these stories and some of this rhetoric that's come out. And there's a reason why we haven't heard this topic being brought up in the past several months, because it's not true. So what does give us hope? What does what does make us want to go forward? Well, for me, it's having people like Monica and Sarah on this call with us. Uh, it's the teenagers that that I work with that have graduated from high school who are the first of their family to be in university. It's the truth of what the story of refugee and immigrant, the immigrant population in America is. It's not the rhetoric that gets combined with politics. So I think it's our responsibility to continually tell this truth and continually tell these stories and amplify, as Monica and Sarah both very eloquently said, to listen and then amplify and give the give a platform to tell the truth on what the face of refugee integration and immigration looks like for us. Monica, oh, yes or no? Definitely hope. I have hope because the community is continuing to show leadership in ways that is remarkable. You know, as farm workers went to work and had no food to eat, they took pride in the fact that they were feeding our nation. And they show us every day what it looks like to be courageous and what it looks like to be resilient. And it is through their courage and it is through their resiliency that they inspire hope in all of us. And, and that is why we do our work. We serve them so that they can have what they need, which ultimately means our nation has what it needs. Jennifer Johnson, from your place there, from the seat of power in Columbus, hope? Definitely hope. I mean, looking around at everyone here today, um, knowing all of the refugees that have come to Ohio initially and who move here, um, all the refugees across the state and uh, all, um, all non-citizens, I'm sorry, I'm always focused on refugees, so I apologize for that. Um, they're here because they want to be here and there are so many people that support them and I feel like Patrick said rhetoric I feel like there's certain people that are much louder now So you feel like you're a silent majority and that you're not gonna Win or overpower or no one's listening to you, but that's not true. Um, there's many many voices out there who believe and try and um, It's just it's the American way. There's there's no reason to give up hope We can't Thank you, Jennifer. Sarah? Yeah, so of course I have hope. I mean, I work with students, children, high schoolers uh, all the time. And so I see them and what they are doing to get involved and to learn and to teach others. And, um, you know, uh, I have to share the CMSD report card just this week. Uh, illustrated that we are increasing our outcomes and our um, our graduation rates specifically for our children of color, our Black and Latino students, and those are groups that have historically been disenfranchised by in, in education and still are in many ways, but seeing those changes being made. Um, and then the current social justice movement to dismantle racism and white supremacist systems and everything that goes along with it, seeing especially young people, but people of all ages rise up and teach others and say, no, we won't stand for this anymore. And we won't allow this harm to happen to people of all kinds in our communities. And we are not only going to protest and be loud, but we are also going to make change and uh, take action. And like Monica was saying, uh, vote up and down the ballots and uh, go out and educate people and uh, have a, be, a, be a part of that. We are seeing 
that a great deal this year, in part because of um, increased awareness around police brutality, in part COVID-19, you know, I don't want to say there's a silver lining to it at all. It has been a horrible thing for our communities, but it has exposed serious inequities in a really clear way. And um, I hope, I, I have hope that that will help us address those inequities here in the future. Thank you so much, Sarah. And thank you for the great work you do with the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. Again, as a private citizen, there's a big levy on the ballot in November. It's important to support it. And I know each and every one of you from my work with you has talked about the importance of libraries as well. And our county library system is also uh, going to be looking for uh, ways in which it can get support. And that's on in November, too. So I want to thank you all for joining us on today's forum on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic that's having on our Ohio's immigrant, refugee, and migrant farm worker community. We are so lucky today to be in a community with not one, but four brilliant lights. We've been led by Sara Ellicott, the Executive Director for Minds Matter Cleveland. We've been led by Jennifer Johnson, the State Refugee Coordinator for the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services under Governor DeWine. We've been led by Monica Ramirez, the founder and president of Justice for Migrant Women. And we've been led by Patrick Kearns, our beloved executive director of Refugee Response for individuals who are so engaged in helping people in ways that really count for our community, for our economy, for our future. I wanna thank real quickly, Bliss Davis, Stephanie Jansky and Dan Malthrop and the whole team at the City Club for everything that they do to continue to provide phenomenal programming I was teasing my kids and I said, you guys are online learning stuff at school. I'm often online learning things at the city club and I wanna thank them. And they would say that the only way they can do their job is their virtual forums being sponsored by Bank of America, the Cleveland Foundation, Eaton, the George Gunn Foundation, Key Bank, Nordson, and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, which has a phenomenal Twitter feed if I do say so. Also, we want to thank PNC, all of these amazing sponsors and many more generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on the City Club website at cityclub.org. Thank you. This organization, now over 100 years old, continues to provide programming that you can't get anywhere else in the world, and they're right here in Cleveland on East 9th and Euclid. Please join the City Club in supporting their work when you make a contribution online or become a member like I did, like Global Cleveland did, at cityclub.org. I'm Joe Simperman with Global Cleveland. Happy Welcoming Week. Go to globalcleveland.org for more details. Happy Constitution Day. And to all of our sisters and brothers in the Latinx community, we celebrate with you Hispanic Latinx Heritage Month. This forum is now adjourned. Yeah.